Chapter Twelve, Part Two of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty-five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. McKinley and Neo-Republicanism, Part Two. The continuance of General Whaler's cruelty swelled from week to week the rising tide of American anger, which was also increased by many special incidents. The frequent arrest of American citizens in Cuba, the ill-treatment often accorded to them, and the insults directed against American consular officers in the island, all of which received a sensational publicity in the press, aroused public sentiment in the United States to a pitch of dangerous irritation. A definite desire for intervention in Cuba became more manifest. In Congress, a majority of both houses were willing to recognize the Cuban rebels as belligerents. Even under President Cleveland it had been proposed to grant this recognition by joint resolution. Secretary Olney, however, had bluntly declared that even should such a joint resolution be adopted by Congress, the President would entirely ignore it. In truth, the Cubans had not yet gained the status of belligerency, and this was President McKinley's opinion as set forth in his first annual message, December 6, 1897. Nevertheless, events were drifting dangerously toward a definite crisis. The Spanish government was still unwilling to consider even friendly mediation on the part of the United States. The Spanish people believed that Americans were secretly aiding the Cuban rebels. And this, in fact, was true, although President McKinley, like President Cleveland, honestly endeavored to prevent it. He felt obliged, however, to make in September 1897 a peremptory demand for the release or speedy trial of all American citizens under arrest. He had previously... Note 21, page 538, asked Congress to appropriate the sum of $50,000 for the benefit of indigent Americans in Cuba, and this help had been promptly given. All recognized that the situation was becoming unendurable. On September 18, 1897, General Stuart L. Woodford, the new American minister to Spain, once more tendered to the Spanish government the friendly offices of the United States. In doing so, he wrote a sentence of which the language, although guarded, was full of meaning. Note 22, page 538. A new ministry had been formed in Madrid under the premiership of the liberal leader, Signor Segasta. He replied to General Woodford's note by announcing that Spain would grant to the Cubans the right of self-government under Spanish sovereignty. General Whaler was recalled and General Blanco was appointed in his place. The reconcentration order was modified, and for a time it seemed as though the crisis had passed. Such, however, was not the case. The Cubans, remembering the promises which Spain had broken in 1878, refused to lay down their arms. The reconcentrados experienced no real relief. Finally, the Spanish loyalists in the island bitterly resented even a nominal grant of self-government to the Cubans. Mobs in Havana threatened the authorities and marched through the streets cheering for Whaler and cursing President McKinley and the United States. So formidable were these outbreaks that the American Consul General Fitzhugh Lee appealed to his government to send a naval force to Cuban waters. The same request had been often made before, but now at last it was heeded. In January 1898, orders were issued in Washington for the North Atlantic Squadron to rendezvous at the Dry Tortugas, within six hours' steaming distance of Cuba, and on the 25th of the same month, the second-class battleship Maine was ordered to Havana. Note 23, page 539. The dispatch of the Maine was officially declared to be a friendly act. The Spanish government was notified, and it consented somewhat reluctantly to the presence of the American warship. 
Senor Sagasta, in a courteous note, informed the American government that Spain would reciprocate by sending the Spanish armored cruiser Vizcaya to visit the harbor of New York. The Maine was received with punctilious attention by the Spanish authorities in Havana. She was conducted to her anchorage by a Spanish officer, and her commander, Captain Charles D. Sigsby, became the official guest of the Spanish governor-general. The people and the press of Havana were, however, far less amiable. Note 24, page 540. Meanwhile, a powerful squadron of battleships and cruisers was gathering at Key West, under the command of Captain William T. Sampson, who kept himself in communication with the commander of the Maine by means of the torpedo boat Cushing. This was the situation at the beginning of February 1898, when an incident occurred to strain still further the relations between the United States and Spain. The Spanish minister at Washington, Senor Dupuy de Lome, had written a private letter to a friend of his in Havana, one Senor Canalejas. This letter fell into the hands of a Cuban sympathizer, who gave it to the American press, and it was published in translation on February 9th. The letter spoke cynically of Spain's grant of self-government to Cuba. It suggested bad faith in Spain's dealings with the American government, and it contained one passage which was grossly disrespectful to the American president. Senor de Lome wrote of Mr. McKinley's message, Besides the natural and inevitable coarseness with which it repeated all that press and public opinion in Spain have said of Whaler, it shows once more that McKinley is weak and caterer to the rabble, and moreover a cheap politician, debil y populachero y además un politicastro, who wishes to leave a door open to himself and to stand well with the jingos of his party. The publication of this letter led to Delhomme's immediate resignation, though the Spanish government disclaimed all sympathy with its sentiments. Popular excitement, both in the United States and in Spain, increased daily. Spain protested against the presence of the American squadron at Key West and against the action of the Red Cross Society in collecting subscriptions for the relief of the reconcentrados. In the United States, a section of the press published the most inflammatory appeals in behalf of Cuba. In the Senate, the question of intervention was debated from day to day, and many influential leaders of both houses urged aggressive action upon President McKinley. The President, however, showed great firmness and self-control. A member of his cabinet afterwards wrote, During the consideration of the notes exchanged, I was often struck by the concern manifested by President McKinley and his advisers of the cabinet to be considerate of the susceptibilities of the Spanish people, and at the same time to attain the one object in view, the permanent pacification of Cuba. Note 25, page 540. Then occurred an event of momentous and far-reaching consequences. At a little before ten o'clock on the evening of February 15th, the battleship Maine, as she lay at anchorage in the harbor of Havana, was blown up by an explosion which wrecked the ship with a loss of two officers and 264 enlisted men. The news of this appalling catastrophe reached Washington soon after midnight, in the form of a telegram from Captain Sigsby in command of the Maine. After briefly narrating the loss of his ship, he added the words, Public opinion should be suspended until further report. A thrill of horror and indignation unparalleled since the firing upon Sumter swept over the American people. Nevertheless, there was no violent demand for vengeance. The gravity of the situation gave steadiness and poise to public opinion. The nation displayed a universal willingness to suspend judgment until a full and rigorous inquiry should be made. 
The tone of the press throughout the country was admirable and is well exemplified in an editorial which appeared in the Philadelphia Press on February 18th. With the continued tension of feeling and the uncertainty respecting the catastrophe to the main, there rests unabated the continued duty to sobriety and reserve of judgment. This is due to truth, to reason, and to ultimate justice. Note 26, page 542. Mr. Henry Watterson wrote in the Louisville Courier-Journal, We are the people of common sense as well as of high spirit. Hence we have never yet gone into a war that was not justified. Hence, too, we await some definite reports as to the disaster which befell the Maine before asserting any other sentiment than horror at the calamity and grief for its victims. And the Kansas City Star well said that the United States was not seeking war, but was endeavoring to ascertain whether an act of war had already been committed against it. A great nation can afford to take time to be perfectly just. Telegrams of sympathy from the governments of foreign countries poured in upon the President. The Spanish Prime Minister spoke words of profound sympathy and sorrow, as did also Governor-General Blanco in Havana. While the high-minded and womanly Queen Regent of Spain cabled an expression of her personal feeling of horror and regret. The honor of Spain as a civilized power was indeed at stake. That so terrible an event should have happened in a time of peace to the warship of a friendly nation, while its commander was a guest of Spain, jeopardized her place in the family of nations. There were many, however, who believed that the disaster to the American battleship had been an accident, due either to the carelessness of the officers and crew or to the spontaneous combustion of high explosives stored within her hull. This view was tentatively held by not a few Americans, while it was almost universally adopted in such European nations as sympathized with Spain in her controversy with the United States. President McKinley immediately ordered a naval court of inquiry to investigate the cause of the disaster. This court was composed of officers whose high professional standing was unquestioned, its president being Captain W.T. Sampson, who had served as chief of the Bureau of Ordnance. After a very careful examination of the circumstances, based in part upon the work of divers who examined the wreckage underneath the water, the Court of Inquiry made its report to the Secretary of the Navy on March 21st. The report showed conclusively that the main had been destroyed from without, apparently by a submarine mine. This was made evident by the circumstance that the plates of the ship had been blown inward and its keel driven upward through its deck, the reverse of what would have happened had the explosion been an internal one. The court confined itself to a detailed statement of the facts and of its own conclusions. It did not attempt to fix the responsibility. Subsequently, a Spanish court of inquiry made an independent examination and reported that the explosion had been an internal one, but it gave no facts such as would amount to a justification of this opinion. It was now obvious to those in power that war could not be long averted. The temper of the people both in the United States and in Spain became distinctly belligerent. The Spanish press teemed with insults directed against the Yankee pigs. One influential journal, El Globo of Madrid, remarked, As a matter of fact, the United States is at present very much like an immense main floating between the Atlantic and the Pacific, and some of her crew have evidently lost their heads. President McKinley, the commander, does his best to restore order among his undisciplined crew. The real main was lost in consequence of the slipshod manner in which the enormous quantities of explosives were stored, and to the undue haste which caused these war preparations to be made on board a vessel manned by an ill-disciplined crew. 
the ruin of the United States will also probably be caused by an explosion. In this case, however, it will really be external. In the United States, a no less bitter feeling now prevailed. Meetings were held in the great cities to urge a declaration of war and the recognition of the Cuban Republic. The tone of the press became more and more warlike. Spanish flags were burned by great crowds which cheered for free Cuba and reproached the government for its apparent inactivity. President McKinley, however, and his advisers were far from deserving this reproach. They knew that war was unavoidable, yet they were desirous of gaining time for preparation. The navy yards and arsenals worked night and day. Messages speeding under the sea directed the rapid concentration of ships of war at important strategic points. Unfinished vessels were hastily completed. Repairs were made with all possible expedition. A naval officer was sent to Europe to purchase men of war from foreign nations. An immense number of torpedoes and submarine mines were bought or manufactured for the defense of American harbors. Guns were mounted on the seacoast fortifications. On March 8th, Congress unanimously voted an appropriation of $50 million to be placed at the disposal of the President as an emergency fund for national defense. Spain responded to this measure by securing a loan of 200 million pesetas, $40 million, from the Bank of Spain. On April 1st, Congress appropriated for the Navy a further sum of $39 million. Negotiations still continued between Spain and the United States with regard to the Cuban situation, but with no satisfactory results. The recall of General Fitzhugh Lee from Cuba was demanded by the Spanish government and was refused by the United States. Spain proposed to submit to arbitration its alleged responsibility for the destruction of the Maine, but this offer was declined. The issue between the two countries had now passed far beyond that isolated subject of dispute. Meanwhile, the attitude of certain foreign powers to the controversy had assumed a serious importance. Three European nations of the first rank were anxious either to prevent the outbreak of a war or, if it were possible, directly to intervene on behalf of Spain. These three nations were Austria, France, and Germany. The motives animating their governments were quite diverse. The Austrian emperor had a dynastic interest in the welfare of the Spanish kingdom. For the queen regent of that country was a Habsburg, the daughter of the Austrian Archduke Karl Ferdinand and personally admired and loved by the aged Kaiser. The interest of France in the dispute was a financial one. French citizens had invested large sums of money in Spanish bonds, while French bankers had financed a great number of Spanish commercial enterprises. A war between Spain and the United States must necessarily depreciate the value of these investments, and therefore France was eager to give the strongest possible support to its Iberian neighbor. The case of Germany was different from that either of Austria or France. There was no ill will between the American people and the people of the German Empire. They were friends as they had always been. But the official class in Germany disliked all that was American, the easy-going ways, the democratic manners, and above all the material success of the American Republic. The German military caste had been humiliated by the stubborn resistance offered to German ambition in Samoa, and by the subsequent defeat of Bismarck in his negotiations with American commissioners at Berlin. The German Kaiser, with his colonial ambitions, had long been vexed to find that the sturdiest of his subjects refused to go on any terms to Cameroon or to New Guinea. 
while every ship that sailed from German ports to the United States bore hundreds away to that republic whose strength they made still stronger and whose loyal sons their sons became. Hence to the German Junker, to the arrogant representatives of militarism, and to the monarch who believed in the divine origin of his own power, America seemed a land that existed only to unsettle the minds of the lowly and to mock by its prosperity and contentment the basic principles of autocratic rule. For many years, therefore, the official German feeling towards the United States had been one of smoldering dislike. Moreover, the general staff at Berlin entertained the lowest possible opinion of American military power. The mighty contest which was waged on American soil during the four years of civil war made no impression upon the German experts. It was a German chief of staff of whom a visitor once inquired, Have you given much attention to the battles of the American war? And he replied with an icy stare, I have no time to waste in studying the struggles of two armed mobs. So spoke the Prussian military expert, and so thought all the disciples of von Moltke. Americans were highly prosperous. They were good at trading and at slaughtering hogs. But they deserved serious notice only when they made themselves offensive to the Hochwohlgeboren. In 1898, a new motive swayed the restless mind of William II. He was now carrying out with vigor his favorite project of a great colonial empire and of a navy able to defend it. Note 27, page 547. His attempts at colonization in Africa had not met with much success. His subjects could not be induced to go out as settlers to lands so utterly unlike the land in which they had been born. In the Brazilian province of Rio Grande do Sul, however, many Germans had found homes and had formed the nucleus of what might, with careful nursing, become a German state. Brazil was weak. What then stood in the way of finding in South America an outlet for German immigration, in a country over which the flag of Imperial Germany might be ultimately raised? Nothing, save the fixed purpose of the United States, that no part of the American continent should be regarded as subject to future colonization by any European power. But how far, so queried the Kaiser, was a nation of traders and money-grubbers able to maintain this doctrine in the face of a great military state like Germany? Of how much importance was the new American navy? What fighting power was there in the sort of armed mob which Americans were satisfied to call an army? These questions doubtless flitted through the Kaiser's mind at the moment when war seemed to be impending between the United States and Spain. Here was a rare opportunity for testing the American capacity for war against the fleets and armies of a European nation. The theoretical soldiers at Berlin knew that Spain had 200,000 regular troops in Cuba. They knew also that Spain possessed on paper a navy not much inferior to that of the United States. They argued, therefore, that the war must be a fairly long one, and that if the Americans invaded Cuba with their motley forces, equipped with small arms that were obsolete and unprovided with siege artillery, they must inevitably be defeated by the Spanish regulars. As to the navy, the Germans were not so sure, but at least they thought that the contest on the sea would be fairly even. Hence the Kaiser looked for a prolonged struggle with the odds somewhat in favor of Spain, at least at the beginning of the war. In order that these odds might be quite overwhelming, the officials in the Wilhelmstrasse conceived the plan of a diplomatic demonstration by the chief continental powers which should hint at intervention on behalf of Spain. This scheme to embarrass the American government appears to have found a ready acceptance at the French Foreign Office and undoubtedly at Vienna. Its consummation must, however, be carried out in Washington. 
There remained one factor in the situation with which these three pro-Spanish powers had still to reckon. This was the attitude of Great Britain, as to which nothing as yet was known but which was of the very last importance. If that nation with its mighty fleet should give even a passive support to the scheme of intervention, then the United States might well be forced to halt and to recede from aggressive action. Lord Salisbury had sent explicit instructions to Sir Julian Pontsfote in Washington, but the purport of these instructions was unknown. On April 6, Sir Julian, as Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, received at the British Embassy the representatives of France, Austria, Germany, and Italy. Just what took place at this gathering is not definitely known. It is practically certain, however, that the Continental diplomats suggested that a joint note be addressed to President McKinley, couched in such terms as to imply a cordial understanding between the signers of the note on behalf of their respective governments. It was intended to so word this letter as to make it in effect a protest against the attitude of the United States, and an intimation that the five great powers would not view with indifference an attack upon the sovereignty of Spain and Cuba. To the consternation of the plotters, the British ambassador gave a flat refusal. Great Britain would not, by word or deed, do anything to mar the very cordial relations which now existed between her and the United States. Back of this plain assertion there lurked something even more significant, a veiled intention on the part of Her Majesty's government to secure to the United States an entirely free hand. When these words had been spoken, intervention became at once impossible, and it was hastily agreed that the joint note should contain only a friendly and humane expression of a general desire for peace. Such a note was then prepared, and was read to the President on April 7th by Sir Julian Ponsfote, who was accompanied to the White House by Dr. von Holben, the German ambassador, Monsieur Jules Cambon, the French ambassador, Baron von Hengelmuller, the minister of Austria-Hungary, and the chargé d'affaires of Italy and Russia. The text of the note communicated to the President was as follows. The undersigned, representatives of Germany, Austria-Hungary, France, Great Britain, Italy, and Russia, duly authorized in that behalf, address in the name of their respective governments a pressing appeal to the feelings of humanity and moderation of the President and of the American people in their existing difficulties with Spain. They earnestly hope that further negotiations will lead to an agreement which, while securing the maintenance of peace, will afford all necessary guarantees for the re-establishment of order in Cuba. The powers do not doubt that the humanitarian and purely disinterested character of this representation will be fully recognized and appreciated by the American nation. To the reading of this note, President McKinley made the following reply. The government of the United States recognizes the goodwill which has prompted the friendly communication of the representatives of Germany, Austria, Hungary, France, Great Britain, Italy, and Russia, as set forth in the address of your excellencies, and shares the hope therein expressed that the outcome of the situation in Cuba may be the maintenance of peace between the United States and Spain by affording the necessary guarantees for the re-establishment of order in the island, so terminating the chronic condition of disturbance there, which so deeply injures the interests and menaces the tranquillity of the American nation by the character and consequences of the struggle thus kept up at our doors, besides shocking its sentiments of humanity. The government of the United States appreciates the humanitarian and disinterested character of the communication now made on behalf of the powers named 
and for its part is confident that equal appreciation will be shown for its own earnest and unselfish endeavors to fulfill a duty to humanity by ending a situation the indefinite prolongation of which has become insufferable the note and the reply were rather neatly summarized by an editorial writer as follows said the six ambassadors we hope for humanity's sake you will not go to war said mr mckinley in reply we hope if we do go to war you will understand that it is for humanity's sake and the incident was closed note twenty eight page five fifty one the failure of this diplomatic plot lent venom to the comments which continental journals published with regard to spanish-american affairs the paris temps predicted that a war would have grave international consequences to the United States and might even produce a revolution and lead to the development of Caesarism, an evil which gnaws the vitals of every democracy. The Journal des Débats spoke of American intervention in Cuba as an act of international piracy without a shadow of justice about it. The Libre Parole, in a vituperative article, made clear the fact that Great Britain's attitude was thoroughly well understood upon the continent. It said, Great Britain is the hypocritical partner of the United States. Their alliance against Spain is a disgrace, but it is just as well to have them work together now, since together they will have to render an account to international justice. The time is coming when Europe will no longer tolerate such miscreants and assassins as John Bull and Brother Jonathan. In Austria, the comments of the press were equally unfavorable. The Fremdenblatt of Vienna declared that a war with Spain would be criminal and asserted that only an infinitesimal minority of the Cubans favored annexation to the United States. But it was in Germany that the anti-Americanism took on its most offensive form. Thus the Berlin Echo remarked, A great deal of noise is made about the fifty million dollars voted for warlike preparations, but this means very little, since the armament of the United States was at zero. Moreover, one cannot tell how much of this money will stick in dirty hands. In short, European opinion generally supports the view that the American people yell loudest for war and are least prepared, while the Spaniards are more anxious for peace but are better armed. Prince Bismarck's organ, the Hamburger Nachrichten, compared the behavior of the Americans to that of an incendiary, who pretends to help extinguish the flames in order to hide his own guilt. This notoriously disreputable republic has the assurance to pose as a censor of the morals of European monarchies. Die Nation of Berlin said that if war came, it would be due to the low politicians of democracy. General Bronsart von Schellendorf, formerly Prussian Minister of War, was quoted as saying that in German military circles, the fighting capacity of the American army was not highly rated, and that the American navy was not sufficiently powerful to destroy the Spanish fleet. A widely read Dutch paper, the News van de Dach, of Amsterdam, which drew its inspiration from Paris and Berlin, was particularly bitter. Spain, it said, has proved itself a nation of men capable of any sacrifice in behalf of their national honor. The corruption of the Spanish officials will have to become a great deal worse before it can rival in rottenness the administration of Tammany-ridden New York or of Porcopolis. The meanest thing of all is that the Americans try to avoid the responsibility of declaring war and seek to insult Spain so grossly that the proud Spaniard loses patience. But there is danger for the rich pork butchers of Chicago and the corrupt debauchees of New York, who speculate à la baisse in war. The Continental Press teemed with the grossest caricatures in which Americans were drawn as swine. 
it was declared again and again that the navy of the united states was utterly devoid of discipline and training and that the army would be put to flight by the spanish regulars in england both press and people were heartily in sympathy with the united states only one conspicuous exception was found and this was in the saturday review of london which maintained to the full its old traditions of hostility to everything american it described the united states as socially sordid to the last degree and as having contributed nothing to the self-respect of humanity on the contrary it has shown all the world to what a depth of public depravity civilization is capable of descending of president mckinley it said mr pecksniff rebuking vanity and selfishness never struck a more beautiful attitude america is not ready for war the authorities at washington know how much all this pot valiant bragging is worth then it proceeded to forecast the result of a war between the united states and spain it described the american seamen as the sweeping of the keys of new york and new orleans men who deserted their own ships attracted by the high pay and easy life of the american marine to whom in most cases fighting is the last thing thought of the spaniards on the other hand are still capable of sublime heroism and daring on the high seas and it is not at all clear that chile and peru and mexico may not discover that they too have a moral sense which is capable of being outraged by oppression and injustice note twenty nine page five fifty four as the weeks went by american preparation took on the aspect of completeness the naval militia was mobilized swift ocean steamers were chartered and equipped with modern guns two protected cruisers a gunboat and two torpedo boats were bought in england note thirty page five fifty four of the regular naval force a strong fleet had now assembled at key west under captain sampson a flying squadron under commodore schley lay at anchor in hampton roads while a patrol squadron under commodore howell cruised in the vicinity of the northern seacoast cities in asiatic waters commodore george dewey collected at hong kong the ships under his command and to him were dispatched large quantities of ammunition on the cruiser baltimore more than fifteen hundred torpedoes and mines were placed in the principal harbors of american seacoast cities note thirty one page five fifty five the spanish war office also displayed activity a spanish squadron was ordered to st vincent and rumor said that another naval force was assembling at the cape verde islands the moment for decisive action had arrived on april eleventh the president sent to congress a special message in which after a recapitulation of recent events he asked that he be empowered to take measures to secure a full and financial termination of hostilities between the government of spain and the people of cuba and to use the military and naval forces of the united states as may be necessary for these purposes in the name of humanity in the name of civilization in behalf of endangered american interests which give us the right and the duty to speak and to act the war in cuba must stop the issue is now with congress it is a solemn responsibility i have exhausted every effort to relieve the intolerable condition of affairs which is at our doors prepared to execute every obligation imposed upon me by the constitution and the law i await your action to this message congress responded on the nineteenth note thirty two page five fifty five by adopting a joint resolution declaring that the people of cuba were and of right ought to be free and independent 
authorizing the president to demand that spain relinquish her sovereignty over cuba and withdraw her forces from that island directing him to employ the army and navy to enforce this demand and finally asserting on the part of the united states a determination to leave the government and control of cuba to its people pursuant to this mandate the president caused to be cabled to general woodford the american minister to spain the text of an ultimatum but already the spanish minister in washington had demanded and received his passports and had departed for canada before general woodford in madrid could communicate with the foreign office he received a note from the minister of foreign affairs informing him that diplomatic relations between the united states and spain had already terminated general woodford thereupon left madrid under very trying circumstances he had borne himself with great dignity and circumspection for a long while he and his family had been subjected in madrid to something like a social ostracism yet he had made no sign and had compelled the personal respect both of the diplomatic corps and even of the spanish officers of state events marched fast the queen regent of spain attended by her son the king then a boy of twelve years addressed the assembled cortes in a speech note thirty three page five fifty six animated by a noble yet pathetic courage and the people of her capital greeted her with frenzied cheers as she made eloquent appeal to their devotion on the following day captain sampson now raised to the rank of acting rear-admiral was directed to blockade the coast of cuba the president almost simultaneously called by proclamation for one hundred twenty five thousand volunteers already detachments of regular troops were moving southward ere long they began to pitch their tents in key west on april twenty fifth congress by a unanimous vote of both houses made a formal declaration of war it was with a feeling of relief that americans received the tidings of this momentous step at last the long-expected hour had come the nation entered upon the struggle at coeur léger curiously enough there was expressed no hatred of the spanish people the war appeared to the multitude in the light of a romantic episode a picturesque adventure in the cities at the theatres and restaurants orchestras played patriotic airs intermingling the star-spangled banner with the strains of dixie men and women leapt to their feet and sang the words an air of buoyant gaiety pervaded every gathering once more the nation was truly and inseparably one and patriotism was not merely dominant it was the fashion far more remarkable was the manner in which the news was greeted in great britain within six hours after the cable had told the story all london burst out into the rainbow hues of the american national colours thousands of american flags floated from shops hotels and private houses while streamers of red white and blue affected a brilliant contrast with the smoky walls of the metropolis a great multitude of people assembled before the american embassy cheering heartily for the united states no such demonstration in behalf of another country had ever before been witnessed in the british capital it banished from the hearts of all americans who witnessed it the memory of other days when the ties of blood and language had been nearly sundered but history was already making from washington on the preceding day a brief dispatch had flashed around the world to commodore dewey at hong kong war has commenced between the united states and spain proceed at once to the philippine islands commence operations at once particularly against spanish fleet you must capture vessels or destroy use utmost endeavors end of chapter twelve